0: When was the last time you said, hmm, I never thought about it that way? The Current aims to give you that moment every single day. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and our award-winning team brings you stories and conversations to expand your worldview. Sometimes they connect to the news of the day, sometimes to the issues of our time. And you'll hear all kinds of people on The Current, from best-selling authors to the Prime Minister to maybe your neighbor. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, now including YouTube. I'll talk to you soon. This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm
2: Neil Kuxal. And I'm Ifi Chiwetelu. This is As It Happens, the Podcast Edition.
1: Tonight. Unbreaking news. It all started with a mysterious envelope delivered to the New York Times, addressed to our guest. It led to a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigation into Donald Trump's finances, and now a new honour. We'll speak with Suzanne Craig, who was just appointed to the Order of Canada. Birthday suit party. After photos of a celebrity-studded
2: party are made public... Russian officials take issue with what the stars weren't
1: wearing. And our guest says the crackdown is more political than prudish. Saving on your bacon, an Ottawa man earns hero status by combing through weekly grocery flyers in the wee hours of the morning and crafting a list that sifts the real steals from the fake deals at all the major stores. She will outlaugh them all.
2: For one swimmer, the fight to save an aging Halifax pool is personal. She's been training there for over half a century, and there is no way a few leaks will get in the way
1: of that streak. Sniffing out the case, a helicopter search, hiring a private detective, Ainsley Foss is doing everything she can to get her dog Dixie back after dozens of rural dogs go missing in Alberta. And there is no reining her in.
2: She's a rising rodeo star. And if things go her way, this Oregon teenager will become the first woman to compete at the top level of a very male-dominated sport, bull riding. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that knows there's nothing to steer but the steer itself. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the American paper of record, the New York Times, and best known for investigative reporting on former President Donald Trump's finances. But Suzanne Craig is a Canadian. She cut her teeth working for the Calgary Herald and the Globe and Mail, and today she was given one of the highest honors this country has to offer, the Order of
1: Canada. We reached her in New York. Suzanne, how long did you have to sit on this news, this scoop about you? A few weeks. It was hard.
3: Oh. I like to break the news. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> a few but weeks. I told them I was. I told them I'd let them announce it. So it was hard, though. It was such just an incredible moment when I learned about it. I couldn't believe it.
1: Yeah, what was happening?
3: I was. Um, I was, of course, closing a uh, closing a story. I had been working for months on a story on Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Mm-hmm. and his finances, and I had been looking for months at his background and his finance and sort of how he made his money. And we were just closing the story. And I was on um, a video call with uh, two of my editors and I got a note from the governor general's office saying we're trying to reach you. And I kind of panicked. <laughs> like, you had no idea. I mean,
1: what, do you, what does one think when they send you an email saying the governor general is trying to reach you? <laughs>
3: There could be an immigration
1: problem.
0: <laughs> I don't
3: know. I'm always like, am I in trouble? Yeah. So I was like, okay, what's going on? So I told them I would just hop off the phone for five minutes, and I called. And the woman who I spoke with at the governor's the Governor General's office uh, said that, you know, we'd, we you know, would you accept? They invited me into the Order of Canada, and I accepted. And I was really emotional. I started to cry. It was just, uh, it was really a moment. Um, it's just hard. You know, I'm a working journalist in the U.S., and you sort of get up every day and just try and do your your best and you're sort of in the middle of something. And then to have um, something like this happen, it was just really incredible. You know, I just sort of like my country saying thank you, which doesn't happen very often. Um, So I was just like, wow, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I actually thought they had the wrong person. at
1: first. (laughs) Let me fact check your your award before you give it to me.
3: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) Yeah.
1: No, it's 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 real. We verified it uh, as well. But when you say you know you're working journalist, I did
3: check the address of the uh, of the. Of Of course, that the email was from. It was it was legit. Yeah, yeah.
1: Good work. Good work. Investigative work on on that one. But is it you know there's you're not feeling a lot of love generally. You're doing the work, the work that you love, but especially in the world we live in today, I can imagine the feedback. Right, it's hard because
3: to me it really is about the journalism. But to this country, it's all about politics and it's hard work and we're just trying to get it right. We are getting it right, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of long hours and and, and a lot of darkness to get to the stories that we've been able to publish. And it's hard publishing in a country that is just honestly so angry about everything. Um, But we keep going and I think there is a lot of support. I try and focus on that, but there's obviously a lot of people who are who are very angry about, um, you know, just anything to do with Trump when you question it uh, and don't want to believe it. And he creates an atmosphere where attacking the press is just fine for a lot of people.
1: You and, and the team you worked with at, at The New York Times won a Pulitzer for your reporting on Donald Trump's finances. And, and it was a, really about dismantling the mythology of Donald Trump and how he achieved fortune and what that fortune really was or or was not. There are lots of misconceptions and myths, negative ones, uh, about journalists and investigative reporting. So I wonder how getting this award at this time, what do you hope that demystifies for people or tells people about the kind of work you're doing and love doing?
3: I think with our case, two or three people who were put on a story can make a difference. The idea of Donald Trump and his taxes and tackling that is a really daunting subject. I just think about how the media in Canada and the US has shrunk so much at just the staff at these local newspapers. And it matters to support your local newspaper and to buy a subscription, because that's gonna help pay the salary of a reporter who may show up at City Hall or at the provincial capital. And find out about something that's going on that's important that you otherwise would not have known about.
1: You have this great anecdote. I think you you wrote about it, uh, a personal piece in the New York Times in 2017, about starting out in local news at a local paper here in Canada and getting your first front page and the importance of knocking on the door. In that case, not once, but twice. Just can you (laughs) give our listeners, just tell our listeners briefly what that experience taught you?
3: knocking on that door and it's interesting because that was the door that i knocked on with stan waters he was an elected senator ended up getting appointed and because i was persistent i got the first interview that he gave um everybody i knocked on the door and he turned everybody away and i just went back half an hour later and knocked again and all of a sudden he was in a better mood and he wanted to talk to me and i think about um you know fast forward to the story that we talked about that won the pulitzer Um, an important source for that story who later came forward um, as the source is Mary Trump, Donald Trump's niece. And in that instance, I knocked on her door and she shut the door on me that day as well. And I just went back again um, and reached out to her over the course of, you know, four or five months. I think, you know, I have kind of a a guiding principle and it. It's really comes back to me a lot, especially when we've done the tax stories because they've been so difficult and and it's a Leonard Cohen poem and he says, there's a crack in everything. And that's how the light gets through. And I have woken up so many mornings just thinking that cracks going to be there because this is so hard, this work. And I think if I had given up on that, you would just walk away, but you have to believe that there's a way into a story. And in our case with the tax work that we did, it worked out. It doesn't always, but I think holding on to that, has meant so much to me for a number of years because the work has been really hard.
1: And you still love it, though? Sounds like
3: I love it. I love being a reporter, and I even in the, the this this you know, and the, the work has really tested me on on Trump and his finances because it was so difficult and it's been so long. But I love it. It's it's an incredible, um, just incredible job that I have, and I, I knew from. The day I walked into the University of Calgary gauntlet and volunteered to be a, a reporter there, that I wanted to do this. And I've been doing it every day since. And I'm glad that people will employ me to do it because I really love it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know what you mean. I can, I can relate. Uh, Suzanne, a, a pleasure speaking yeah. with you. Congratulations again. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much.
2: New York Times reporter Suzanne Craig was appointed to the Order of Canada today. We reached her in New York City. By day, Donovan Bury works for Statistics Canada, but by night, he is the Crimson Tape. He may not be an actual superhero, but he is a hero to many, and his following has grown right along with the rising prices at the checkout counter. Because under the username Crimson Tape on Reddit, Donovan Beery compiles a weekly list of the best grocery prices in Ottawa, which is where we reached him.
1: Have you always loved a good deal?
4: Oh
5: yeah. <laughs> it might've been instilled, uh, into me by my parents. Uh, we, I grew up in a pretty frugal family. I think, uh, the total, we were uh, five kids. Um, most of us living in the household all at the same time. Um, and, uh, that includes, uh, like a multitude of dogs, <laughs> I think three of them at the, at the, at the peak. Um, so, you know, like saving money in terms of uh, you know, buying the deals, looking out for what's on sale, uh, cooking at home a lot. That was an absolute necessity to, mm-hmm. to make sure that uh, we got the sort of the best out of our budget.
1: And a lot that, that people can relate to today, certainly all over the country oh, yeah. Yeah, and elsewhere. When did it shift for you, though, just from that's just the way you, you live your life and, and you, you like to look for deals to, OK, I'm going to make this huge spreadsheet and then I'm going to publish these lists on Reddit?
5: Uh, you know, some of it was just like a personal exercise, just you know, just to kind of for the kicks. And I was like, okay, well, what am I actually spending on here in my my grocery list? And honestly, it became a little convoluted and kind of hard to track. Um, and I I got way more value out of building a personal compass of what a good price was for a given item. And you know, sometimes that's like, you know, it, it requires a little bit of mental gymnastics. So I prefer to buy in bulk. I'll buy the ten pound bag of onions. Because I know I'm getting the onions at 40 cents a pound. Mm -hmm. If you buy loose onions, you're paying about $2 a pound. So it's that kind of um, price scaling that I was really starting to pay attention to.
1: And and buying in bulk, though, we should say. I mean, people living in small condos, that's not necessarily – not the big bag of onions, anyway. Yeah.
5: Well, you know, it's that effect. You know, if if you can, do some groceries with your neighbor. Um, You know, sometimes it's like, yeah, you can split that that big 10-pound bag – You just get five pounds. You pay a couple of bucks instead of really, really paying more for less. Still, even to this day, I'll, I'll be like, okay, let's split on this or split on that, and it it definitely pays off. Definitely pays off.
1: And never buy anything. That's not on sale. <laughs>
5: yeah. Or at least try to, right? It was the the straight, no-chaser answer that my mom would give me, you know, when, when I was young. So we'd be in the store and be like, ah, oh, can I have this? And my mom would be like, ah, oh, it's not on sale. We're not getting it this week. And <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, you know, I'm fine, you know. Um, but It works, though. Really it, it does. It really does. It's definitely something worth, uh, worth sticking by if you want to be a little bit more budget conscious. What does your spreadsheet look like? So really it's just the item, the price. You know what format does it come in? Is it does it come in a 10 pound bag or is it a per pound price? And then I add a comment, um, and so I'll, I'll I'll pop in like, oh, this is a great price for you know this winter, you know for for I don't know like green onions and parsley. You know I'll I'll make a comment about I don't know. Uh, let's see here. I'm actually looking here. Uh you know like yeah, go buy that big seven pound eight pound bag of, of of apples, but you're going to end up with a lot of apples you know you, you might want to have a plan for that you know so <laughs> um it's it's that extra commentary that I think actually draws people in um because it, it gives them um a sense of why the the sale is actually good in the first place
1: We mentioned you work at Statistics Canada. What do you love more a good deal or data?
5: <laughs> you wouldn't have one without the other really. So, Fair. Um yeah, the trick question. No, um <laughs> but uh yeah, no, it's um I I've always loved kind of playing in mathematical environments, uh, you know, playing with formula, looking at the data, looking for patterns. Um and this is just like a, a real life uh sort of factor face side to the whole uh the whole equation there and uh yeah, yeah.
1: This is fun for you.
5: It is, yeah. Yeah, I, I get a lot of joy out of it, and and especially with the reactions that people give me and the support that they've been, they've been throwing at me, it's, it's hard not to enjoy.
1: When prices are high, as they are now, a <laughs> lot of people will they'll look for the cheapest prices, and sometimes that means not the healthiest food. So yeah. based on what you've seen, the analysis you've done and, and are doing, is it still possible for people to eat well, to eat good food, healthy food, without totally depleting their bank accounts?
5: Yeah, see so that's that's where it's um, there's a tragedy there. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we had like dollar seventy nine carton of eggs. Between now and then, we've seen basically a fifty percent to one hundred percent increase on some of these these, these mm-hmm. staple items, right? And I, produce is severely affected in that in, in that regard. Interestingly enough, if you look at frozen foods and things that are canned, they've suffered maybe about half of that impact. Um, and so what's the, the tragedy here is more and more people are being relegated to buying frozen food, engaging in unhealthier less healthy eating habits, mm-hmm. and they're being locked out of enjoying those healthier options, which is basically fresh produce. That's not, that's where I think like the, the, the value of the list really comes out, um, and especially if you have a bit of flexibility in your diet, where it's like, okay, today I might be enjoying avocados. Or sweet peppers. Tomorrow it might be cauliflower, or the cheap broccoli, or you know the next day after that, you know, and so on and so on. Um, so there's there's real power that comes from being able to, to be flexible in your in your diet, as well as being able to find those those deals and hopefully stock up when you can. So um, you know, if butter's cheap, buy an extra couple of bars and don't spend six, seven, eight dollars on the bar. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, if it's cauliflower and it's cheap. Buy a couple of heads, freeze a head. There's nothing wrong with that.
1: Apart from shopping with you know, neighbors or friends um, and splitting those big items, what, what's your advice?
5: I try to steer my habits into, if I can freeze it, I do. So it's about sustaining good, uh, good pantry habits, essentially. Um, the other side of it is I actually save um, my little bits of onion and carrot and celery and all that jazz and I can bag and freeze them, and I'll make soup stocks. So I try to actually actively address my waste factor by seeing what I can transform that waste into. Oh. Just because it's like the end of an onion doesn't mean it's actually bad, right? And so um, it's possible to actually recuperate an additional meal out of something that yeah. might have been just scrap.
1: A very good friend of mine calls them vegetable bones. <laughs> yeah. Freezes yeah, exactly. them to make soup. Donovan, thank you for this. Oh, you're very welcome. Donovan Beery posts a weekly
2: list on Reddit of the best Ottawa grocery prices. We reached him in Ottawa. (music) Halifax City Council is looking at replacing the Centennial Pool in the city's north end. It was built for the 1969 canada games and some say it may have reached the end of its usefulness not so say a group of dedicated centennial pool fans among them is linda hunt who has logged thousands of meters of laps since she began swimming there as a teenager over half a century ago
6: i've been swimming here probably well on a part-time basis, with competitions, etc., I've been here probably since 1967 when the pool opened. Um, I didn't swim at the club here, but I did all of my major competitions out of this facility, which included the Canada Games in 1969. Um, it's the we have been so fortunate to have a long-course pool that we've had access to. It, it was probably the very first long-course pool in the province of Nova Scotia. Um, it's something that we desperately needed. Um, now, later on, what I, what I ended up doing, I, after I took a break you know, to raise my family, I came back to master swimming, and I walked on deck of this pool, and the rest is history.
4: What's the feeling you get when you come? You talked about it almost being like magical.
6: Well, it is. It is, it is, a, is a magical spot. I mean, look at the, the high ceiling you just look around and you say to yourself, oh my God, this is such a beautiful facility. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's 50 meters. And I mean, that's what makes this so special. You know, you, you, you cannot, we cannot lose a 50 meter pool, period.
4: It's kind of incredible. You were swimming here as a 15 year old and you didn't mind telling me you're now 69. Right. I mean, how much has this pool helped you in terms of not, not just your fitness, but, as part of a healthy lifestyle in, in
6: well exactly see the thing about swimming is swimming can be done for a lifetime we can you know when i go to nationals or when i go to worlds there are 80 and 90 year olds that are swimming and they're still they're still swimming we had a hundred year old man in canada who was still swimming in fact he was 105 so um it, it's and the camaraderie i mean the team the team feeling that you that you have when you're when you're swimming. You, there's nothing better.
2: That was swimmer Linda Hunt speaking to CBC's Gareth Hampshire in Halifax. When it comes to rodeos, there's not much that you'd call a low-contact sport. You've got your steer wrestling, your calf roping, even barrel racing can get pretty gnarly. But bull riding, given the dangerous mix of thrashing hooves and horns and bovine anger, it is next level. And Naja Knight lives for it. The bull rider is aiming to become the first woman to compete at the top level of the professional bull riders tour. There's just one problem. She'll have to turn 18 first. We reached 17-year-old Naja Knight in Arlington, Oregon.
1: Naja, can you, can you describe the feeling? I bet there's a few that flow through you when, when the gate
7: opens up and you fly out of it hanging on to that bull. Uh, the feeling that I get when the shoe opens is, you know, determination. It's the grit that you have. It's the heart that you need to have, you know. If you don't have the heart, you're not going to go very far. But... Um, for me, it's the determination, the excitement, and the adrenaline all running through me at the same time. You didn't mention fear, interestingly. That never comes <laughs> into the equation. No, ma'am. If you're scared, you're going to get hurt.
1: So I don't know a lot about the competitions, but I, I have learned that if the tougher the bull, the more points you score. So when you see a bowl that, that looks particularly tough in the pen, are you thinking... Oh man! Or are you thinking, okay, this is this is my chance?
7: Yes, ma'am. I'm more thinking of this is my chance. This is my time to show people what I can do. It's my time to get a ninety point ride. You know, just make the highlight.
1: <laughs> ninety points—that's what we're going for.
7: Uh, that's that's like the a monster ride, as they use in the PBR. But you always want to shoot for that that perfect ride. You know? Yeah,
1: that's the professional bull riders yes, PBR. I mean, that's what we call it in in the biz. <laughs> folks like folks like you and I, Nasia. Um, <laughs> when did
7: this start for you? Bull riding started for me at nine, but rodeo started for me when I was three with my dad. Yeah, and what did you start doing when you were when you were three? I started mutton busting, which is sheep riding, and then I moved on to calves. Well, I actually skipped the calf stage. I went on to steers at the age of seven, and then at nine went on to mini bulls, and then now I'm on junior bulls. Was that always the goal,
1: to go up and up and up? Because, I mean, a lot of kids probably try... All the things you just listed, though many of us are learning about button busting for the first time, uh, you know, they may try it and not like it. Like, do you, do you remember just liking it from the very start?
7: Yes, ma'am. As soon as I got on my first mini bowl or bowl ever, I just fell in love with it and wanted to keep going at it. This is something you and your dad work on together a lot. I know the whole family's
1: involved in different ways. Your mom is, is an EMT, Uh, as well, um, trying to to make sure she can take care of you guys as as needed. But what has your dad told you about this life?
7: My dad has taught me everything that I know, honestly. He's my coach, my mentor, and my father all at the same time. He knows what
1: it's like. He knows it's dangerous uh, and difficult, uh, but he's also supported you in this. I mean, has he ever said, you know, it's dangerous, don't?
7: Uh, No, ma'am. He's always been very supportive of, me wanting to do this, he's always been there with me, always encouraging me, just praying with me, and just, we make a fun time out of it. How do you, how do you push that fear away? Um, Well, I've been doing it for so long, so it kind of doesn't really come as fear to me. Just fearless, Um, But when I first got on, I was a little nervous, but you know, I I changed my nervousness into excitement. You also, so you're, you're great at school from what I read. You also play basketball
1: and volleyball. I think you were out of basketball practice even, even today before we, we got down to speak. So what does, what does bull riding give you that those other
7: sports don't? Bull riding gives me the happiness and the adrenaline that I'm itching for. <laughs> you, you have siblings as well, sisters
1: and a brother? Yeah.
7: Yes, ma'am. I have two little sisters and two big brothers.
1: Oh, yeah. So how do they feel about how successful you've been so far?
7: They love it. They're so supportive. They want to go to rodeos with me. They want to experience it, and they think it's really cool. You have
1: had some injuries before or, you know, difficult moments, close calls even. Can you tell me about one that stays with you?
7: Uh, One that stays with me is probably getting my face stepped on or my arm broken because the one where I got my face stepped on I still had a bull to ride that same day right after that perf Um, and I still got on because I was not about to withdraw out of that rodeo because I wanted to show people that I can still do it in that moment you didn't want to quit at all blood streaming down your face no (laughs) ma'am Oh, man, that gave me even more motivation.
1: (laughs) You said in another conversation, I'm just another cowboy is how you put it. Is that hard to
7: convince people? Uh, A couple of people, it is a little hard to convince that I'm just another bull rider. And to me, I don't feel any different from being a girl and from being a boy bull rider. A couple of people are like, oh, why don't you just go out and model? Or how come you don't just go out and do this? (laughs) I mean, I am a model, but I want to do bull riding. (laughs)
1: Oh, P.S. I also do that. Yeah, in addition to perfect grades, volleyball, basketball, bull riding, and yeah, that's quite I'm a resume just doing you what I love. Have. Yes, you're ma'am. Just doing what you love. <laughs> I like that. But I wonder if do you think it's strange that it's still rare to have a woman at this level in your sport that we're having this conversation in 2023, almost 2024. Is
7: that strange to you? Uh, To me, it's not super strange. I mean, I've heard it quite a bit, but it's not for everyone. I know that not all the girls want to, you know, do this, but some male-dominant sports have other girls that go for it. Like, there's race car driver girls, there's, you know, girls that play hockey, just all these contact sports that girls can play as well. I
1: just had a I just had a conversation actually yesterday about a woman who was a race car driver, a pioneer in that in the in the 70s and fearless, the word they used to describe you is what they used to describe her as well. She likes the speed. That's
7: awesome. Yes, ma'am. What
1: do you I mean, I'm sure her sisters ask you questions, but other young women as well, what do you hope they take away from what you've done so far?
7: I hope they take in that you can do anything you put your mind to, uh, no matter the gender, no matter what age you are. You can do anything that you want to do and that you love doing and don't let anyone hold you back. And uh, what's the next goal now? My next goal is to win a world championship in the PBR.
1: <laughs> the first woman to do that, that you would be, right? Yes, ma'am. Well, Neja, uh I appreciate your time. Thank you.
7: Of course. Thank you.
1: Nasia
2: Knight is a 17-year-old bull rider and one day, maybe even the professional bull riders champion. We reached her in Arlington, Oregon.
0: When was the last time you said, hmm... I never thought about it that way. The Current aims to give you that moment every single day. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and our award-winning team brings you stories and conversations to expand your worldview. Sometimes they connect to the news of the day, sometimes to the issues of our time. And you'll hear all kinds of people on The Current, from best-selling authors to the Prime Minister to maybe your neighbour. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, now including YouTube. I'll talk to you soon.
2: When you hear about public figures in Russia being sent to prison for disorderly conduct, you might think about political critics of Vladimir Putin, and not a rapper who went to a star-studded party wearing nothing but a single sock. And it wasn't on his foot. But that's what happened over this holiday season. It all started with a so-called almost-naked party in Moscow, organized by a blogger and TV personality named Nastya Ivliva. At the party, there was a lot of mesh and lingerie, and after video leaked out, there was public outrage. The rapper in question was fined and jailed for 15 days. Other celebrities who attended have issued apologies. To explain more, we reached freelance journalist Leonid
1: Ragozin in Riga, Latvia. Leonid, just describe for our listeners what happened at this party.
8: Right. Uh, So it was a gathering of pop culture personalities, Mm -hmm. uh, some of them very famous. So you can picture like Madonna and Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake of Russia gathering in in, in one place. And uh, they are half naked or some of them are really properly naked. And one person wearing nothing but a sock on his private part.
1: Just to be clear, that's the fame level of the people uh, at this party. The names you listed were not there, just in case anyone misheard that. But there must be Leonid parties at at clubs every night where people are in varying states uh, of undress in in Russia, just as there are in many places around the world. So why has the reaction to this been so swift and so loud?
8: Well, I think it's uh, probably not as regular as as it would be in uh, Western cities. But it's it's not uncommon uh, for parties like this to happen in Russia. The reason, uh, I guess, partly is that uh, the organizer put out the photographs from this um, party on her Instagram, and she's a famous influencer. Uh, So it uh, immediately became a news in the tabloid environment. And then the state uh, propaganda jumped on it because uh, unlike the state propaganda back in the Soviet times, the modern Russian propaganda derives uh, much of its uh, inspiration from the uh, Western tabloid and uh, cable network culture uh, with the scandals, with the outrage culture, with the uh, cancel culture. So when these celebrities uh, appear uh, semi-naked, it is very easy for spin doctors in the Kremlin and uh, media managers in state-run channels to uh, blow it out of all proportions to gain bigger audience.
1: How much of it is about distraction, in your view?
8: Uh, I think it is, uh, to a large extent, uh, about controlling large uh, audiences in Russia. And uh, these uh, kind of trashy stories, they allow the Kremlin to be in charge of the uh, news agenda. And distraction is is part of it. While uh, everybody was uh, focused, including Western media, by the way, covering Russia, while everybody was focused on this uh, story, speaking even about today uh two political activists were jailed for uh, six and five years respectively for reading subversive poetry in the center of moscow under a monument to a famous poet and one of navalny's uh, coordinators in siberia is facing uh, 10 and a half years in prison as was announced today by the uh, prosecutor's office Uh, so yes destruction is is uh, part of the story
1: What does it tell you about the mindset of the general Russian population at this point in time?
8: I think we are talking about a population that is uh, uh, defined by consumerism. And also when it comes to the news consumption, Mm -hmm. it is very similar to the audiences of uh, Western tabloids and uh, uh, cable networks, Fox News uh, in the Mm -hmm. United States. Uh, But because it is Russia, it is also more grotesque and uh, the risks, uh, political risks uh, faced by Uh, Various people in Russia are uh, far greater than they are for people in the United States whose risks are really being cancelled or being a target of uh, public outrage.
1: How does the war factor in all of this pro-war, anti-war sentiment? How are you seeing that play out?
8: Well, uh, there was a, uh, an anti war motive uh, because uh, the organizer of this party uh, used to produce posts that were mildly anti war. So that comes into the mix. And uh, when we talk about the outrage, uh, the outrage comes from the uh, minority of Russia, a really small minority, which uh, vocally supports this war. These are the people who uh, who are providing all the outrage commentary about this party and uh, uh, how terrible it was of uh, these people to uh, appear naked uh, uh, on, on photos mm-hmm. on Instagram while soldiers are dying there in Ukraine. Yeah.
1: We've mentioned the rapper who was jailed briefly and fined. The person who threw the party issued an apology and took down her posts about it. But beyond that, do you think that there could be any other official punishment or repercussions?
8: Uh, not for these people, I don't think so. These people are part and parcel of the Russian elite that is uh, Responsible for the war, that is responsible for uh, for the shaping of uh, Putin's uh, regime. On public, they will atone for their sins uh, somehow. You, you might see them uh, wearing uh, Soviet uh, uniforms on the ninth of May, the Victory Day in Russia. But that'll be it. The parties like this will continue for the members of the elite, and also there were uh, LGBT. Uh, uh, motives in, in this party are pretty, pretty open. Uh, and again, this was used by the state like it was used back uh, 10 years ago in the in Pussy Riot scandal. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm pretty sure that uh, for years to come, gay clubs will continue to function in Russia and this kind of parties will continue to happen. <laughs> and mind you, uh, members of Putin's administration will be uh, attending those mm-hmm. parties unofficially.
1: And when this when this disappears from the headlines, then what?
8: Uh, There'll be another story. They'll come up with something else. It's it's the constant uh, news cycle for the Kremlin to generate uh, this kind of stories Mm -hmm. artificially or to jump on this kind of stories if, if they pop up. Leonid, thank you. You're very welcome.
2: Leonid Ragozin is a freelance journalist who covers Russia. He was in Riga, Latvia. Kevin Boone says the top concern he's hearing from his members right now is water and the lack of it. He's the general manager of the B.C. Cattlemen's Association. And you've likely heard the stories in the news this year, too, about the effect of drought on parts of the province. Ranchers have described skyrocketing feed prices. Others have had to decide whether to reduce their herd sizes. This morning, Mr. Boone and Phil Bragg spoke to the CDC about the conditions. Mr. Bragg is the general manager of the Douglas Lake Ranch. Here's Mr. Boone first.
9: With the lack of moisture and snowfall we're seeing this year, uh, there's not much there right now to fill the dams and the dugouts, and uh, that watershed uh, that we need and the runoff is just not looking really good right now.
4: Yeah, and that's difficult, I mean, with no snowpack. Are you getting some precipitation right now, though?
9: Uh, we're getting a little. Um, I'm, I'm a fairly high elevation where I live, so i mine is snow right now, but very little. Uh, for this time of year, where we should have you know, a couple or three feet up here, uh, we've got a couple of inches.
4: Right. Now, Phil, uh, you're the general manager of Canada's largest privately held cattle ranch. Um, tell me how you're seeing the impacts play out on the ground.
9: Yeah, it's certainly uh, uh, difficult. Uh, in a good year, we will get... Uh, between eight and ten inches of moisture a year, which uh compared to Vancouver's sixty inches is is very little. And then we go into times of drought obviously and it can be a lot less than that. So we're somewhat versed in, in dealing with uh uh very little moisture um and have invested a lot of money over the years in becoming more water efficient with our with our use. Um but it certainly is a challenge and uh uh something that uh is it's definitely worrisome for us.
4: And I mean, uh, how how bad did it get this past summer? Because we know for a lot of, we know that some uh, ranchers were making very difficult decisions about what to do with their herds.
9: Yes, yeah, and that's that's the same for us as well, just on a much larger scale. There's there's no doubt we need water, uh, both on uh, on the crop growing side for winter feed, as well as water to grow grass for the cattle to eat in the summer. So when that becomes a, uh, scarce, then Decisions have to be made around uh, cattle inventories, and to match those with with the conditions.
4: Um, and and how do you manage during those times of severe drought? I mean, you you've already said you're doing what you can to um, uh, to use less water. How do you manage when when you're getting no rain at all?
9: Yeah, we've we've certainly had years of drought in the past, but they have not been you know two or three years of consecutive years of drought we have so far always been saved uh, if you will uh by rainfall or or snowfall at the right time that has allowed us to carry on in in this very similar capacity as as we currently are so um the weather has has cooperated at the right time uh so far Uh, we don't expect that to continue Uh, forever, and uh, certainly there'll be be some decisions made around um, our inventory levels.
2: Kevin Boone is the general manager of the BC Cattlemen's Association, and Phil Bragg is the general manager of the Douglas Lake Ranch. They spoke with the CBC's Stephen Quinn this morning. If you're in Alberta, not far from Big Hill Springs Provincial Park, there's a chance you've come across a poster about a big white dog named Dixie. Dixie went missing in November. And like a lot of dog owners, Ainsley Foss put up a poster hoping it would help her get her pup home. Her strategy has now gone far beyond that and now includes a helicopter and a private investigator. We reached Ainsley
1: Foss in Rocky View County, Alberta. Ainsley, any, any new tips, any new information about Dixie today?
10: Oh, we get tips daily. So two have come in. One, uh, someone saw a dog being dumped uh, just outside of Morley on the highway. So um, I have some people searching that area right now and I'll head out right after this interview. And then another, uh, two people called about a dog just near Leduc, um, again on the highway. So no uh, physical pictures of these dogs, but uh, phone calls that we mm-hmm. often get, you know, a few tips a day.
1: Just describe Dixie for our audience. What's she like?
10: So Dixie is a three-year-old Merima. She turned three um, Well, she was stolen, so on December 14th. Um, she is the sweetest dog ever. She is tough yeah, and fierce, but very, very sweet. So she always protects kind of whoever's the most vulnerable So we've had young, young kids come and she just follows the kids around or, you know, I've had a foal on the property and she'll lie down and bed down with the foal. So she's very, very sweet and protective and loving. Um, At the same time, you know, she'll go nose to nose with a coyote.
1: And what makes you think that she didn't just wander off or that she's lost? You feel that she was definitely stolen. Why?
10: Yeah, so both uh, are same... RCMP and myself do think she's stolen, um, there was an air tag on her collar. The Apple air tag was, was needed to be weaved through her collar, and it was discarded on the side of the highway, and there was clearly human interference when it came to that. So that's number one. Number two is that she's a very routine animal, so she knows, you know, where she, we, we know where she should be at all times, and she's not one to, you know, miss her bedtime or miss her supper time and, So she missed those that day, and, you know, that's that's not like her at all.
1: You mentioned the RCMP. They're investigating Dixie's disappearance as well. But I know that there have been many other similar cases nearby. Just tell me about the other cases and the the similarities you see between them.
10: I've tried to determine the trends of the types of dogs. It's rural, and from from my researching, is, is that the reason why they go after rural dogs is because they're easier to catch right they're easier to lure out there was a time where Dixie would be roaming the property and you know there was now a time where I won't even let my dog now go out to go to the washroom by herself but you know there was a time we let our dog go and play in the hayfield you know for all all day in the summer and we would watch them but you know we weren't just keeping an eye on them full time so they're just they're I think they're an easier target. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Are you keeping them close because of the threat of, of them being stolen or is there another absolutely. reason? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean what do you think is happening to them? Do, do you think they're being sold to families? So many have gone missing.
10: Yeah so I've, heard, I've heard obviously lots of theories and uh, the worst uh, scenarios have obviously gone through my head. The one thing I'd like to you know kind of state is, is that I've chatted with the SPCA and several police officers and, and they have confirm that there is no dog fighting so that's one thing I I like to rule out right away when I'm talking to people. Uh, I personally think they are being sold or used for breeding. The ones that can't use for breeding I think are being dumped or tried to be sold. I wouldn't be surprised if this bee was dumped because she has spayed Um, but I mean that's my theory
1: in addition to the official RCMP investigation, you, as we said, you're taking tips. There's a whole sort of network of people helping you as well. What kinds of things have you all been been doing to try to get Dixie back?
10: Uh, one is the big thing is getting the word out, uh, social media, um, traditional media. I've received tons and tons of tips of people having attempted dog sacks or, um, you know, uh, suspicious activity. That activity they posted on Facebook, which doesn't really help the RCMP. So I really advocated that people report that activity. And Crime Stoppers even allows you to, if you see something like that on Facebook or whatever, is to just take a screenshot of it and send it to Crime Stoppers directly and try to make a police report. So I know a lot of people who have had their dogs stolen and they haven't made a police report or they've tried to make a police report and the police simply
1: won't make a report they have in your case.
10: Yeah. So initially, actually, when I called the RCMP, they said there was nothing they could do about it. I spoke to a second officer, and he said, "Absolutely, this is a this is a theft. Uh, this is property theft. You need to come in right away and make a report." But the initial mm-hmm. uh, police officer said, "No, no, this
1: is no, there's nothing they could do." And about thirty other rural dogs have gone missing just in the last month. When we talk about, yeah. So
10: I, I first put together a chart, and I think there was nine or ten at the time. And then since then um there's another victim who's who's keeping track of it and she said that there's upwards of thirty. She's now reaching out to all of them to say you guys need to make a police report because the police number is vastly different than the number that we have and you know, the police can't do anything if people aren't reporting this.
1: It's been just over over a month now. So yeah. you're you know, you're still working to find her, but are you preparing yourself for for a situation where you might not get her back,
10: ah, uh, yes and no. Like I think every, wor- you know, the worst two scenarios go through my head mm-hmm. all the time. The one thing is, is that you know people say, well, you know, she might be dead. and The one thing that I do think is, is that you know, what if she's alive and she's being hurt? And that's what really keeps me motivated on finding her. Is is that I, you know, it's my job to protect
1: them, and so you know, until
10: I know that she's safe. I really am probably
1: not going to stop. Sounds like they're family for you. Yes,
10: yeah, they're everything to me.
1: Well, I hope you get Dixie back, Ainsley. Thank you for your time.
10: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: Ainsley Foss is
2: Dixie's owner. We reached her in Rocky View County, Alberta. This time of year, many of us are thinking more about ways to give back to others. Paul Shea has been thinking about it and doing it for the past four decades. Recently, the St. John's man marked his 500th donation to Canadian Blood Services. He began donating blood without much thought, then the cause became personal, with each subsequent donation in honor of his brother. Mr. Shea explained his journey to the CBC's Anthony Germain.
11: I first gave blood when I was uh, in university in 1980. It was at the uh, university uh, blood drive on the campus for all the, the houses, all the residents. And I was part of St. John's College residence. And we competed for a cup, a trophy called the Red Shield. Yeah, it was a competition, but yeah. a friendly one. Yeah, bragging, I, bragging rights. Bragging rights, but yeah. you could also uh, tell students who are all healthy and well to, you know, here's how you can help someone out. Without yeah. any skills whatsoever.
0: Then you go for a beer like and all the,
11: uh, Yes, yeah. uh, yes. You, you could go for a beer and uh, it would hit you really hard. So you so maybe only have one or two. money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. My second time giving blood, my brother had visited me about a month before that. It was in the spring of 1981. And uh, he had learned uh, that Christmas that he had leukemia. He was 22. I was 17. It was a lot to uh, consider. In uh, 1996, my sister, one of my younger sisters, Anne, mm-hmm. uh, was able to donate bone marrow. By Christmas that year, he had actually been sent home. I think it was December 10th or 11th. He came home with a clean bill of health, no cancer. However, no immunity either. Yeah. Though so unfortunately, uh, by March he was uh, had been uh, he picked up a little Norwalk-like virus, and uh, unfortunately, like. For us, we'd be just a day or two and we'd have a – you know, uncomfortable. The immune immune system would But he had no immune system. So uh, he was – less than two weeks, he was gone. That fast? Yeah. His wife, Madonna, they were left with uh, a four-year-old girl, Aaron, and my nephew, Michael, who was around 10. Do you stick with this because of Peter? Yes. And and everyone – that I've met along the way. And I also say it this way, that uh, it it really sucks in my life to uh, go into a hospital and be carrying in bananas or fruit or flowers when really they need blood in there somewhere. So I feel like I'm helping out without having to go in so that when I do go in, I have a a conscience that's, you know, I've helped someone in here. You've done something. you've done something. Yeah.
2: That's Paul Shea of St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador speaking to Anthony Germain, host of CBC's On The Go, about his 500th donation to Canadian Blood Services. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following The World at 6.
1: You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app. Take care. I'm Neil Kheksal. And I'm Ipi Chiwetelu.